Chapter One of The Blind Musician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Blind Musician by Vladimir Korolenko. Chapter One The Blind Infant, The Family. Part One at the hour of midnight in a wealthy family living in the southwestern part of russia a child was born as the first faint pitiful cry of the baby echoed through the room the young mother who had been lying with closed eyes unconscious to all appearances stirred uneasily in the bed she murmured a word or two in a low whispering tone while her pallid face with its sweet and almost childlike features was disfigured by an expression of impatience like that of a spoiled child who resents the unwanted suffering as something new to her experience the nurse bent low to catch the inarticulate sounds that fell from her whispering lips why why does he murmured the invalid in the same impatient whisper the nurse did not understand the question. Again the child cried out, and again the same shadow of sharp pain darkened the face of the mother, while large tears rolled down from her closed eyes. Why, why, she repeated in a whisper. At last the meaning of her question seemed to occur to the nurse, who answered quite calmly, Oh, you mean why does the child cry? babies always do you must not agitate yourself but the mother was not to be pacified she started every time the little one cried and kept repeating in tones of angry impatience why why so dreadfully to the nurse there seemed to be nothing unusual in the cries of the infant and supposing the mother to be either unconscious or simply delirious she left her and busied herself with the child the young mother said no more but from time to time an anguish too deep for expression brought the tears to her eyes they forced their way through the thick black eyelashes and slowly rolled down her pale marble-like cheeks perchance her mother's heart was torn by a presentiment of some dark abiding misery hanging like a heavy cloud over the infant's crib and destined to accompany him through life even unto the grave these signs of emotion on the other hand were very likely nothing more than the wanderings of delirium but however this may have been the child was indeed born blind part two at first no one perceived it the boy had that vague way of looking at objects common to all very young infants as the days went by the life of the new-born man could soon be reckoned by weeks his eyes grew clearer the thin film that had overspread them disappeared and the pupil became defined but the child was never seen to turn his head to follow the bright sunbeams that found their way into the room nor did the merry chirping of the birds nor the rustling of the branches of the green beech trees in the shaded garden beneath the windows attract his notice the mother who had now recovered was the first one to mark with anxiety the strange immobility of the child's expression 
so invariably calm and serious with pitiful eyes like a frightened dove she would question those about her tell me what makes him look so unnatural what do you mean strangers would reply in tones of indifference he looks like all other children of his age but watch him see how oddly he fumbles with his hands the child cannot yet regulate the movements of his hands by the impressions which his eyes receive replied the doctor why does he look constantly in one direction he is blind as the dread suspicion found utterance in words not one of them could calm the mother's agitation the doctor took the child in his arms and turning him suddenly toward the light looked into his eyes an expression of alarm passed over his countenance and after a few vague remarks he took his leave promising to return in two days the mother moaned and fluttered like a wounded bird pressing the child to her bosom while the boy's eyes kept ever the same steadfast and rigid stare the doctor did return in two days bringing with him an ophthalmoscope after lighting a candle he proceeded to test the eyes of the infant by flashing it suddenly before them and as suddenly withdrawing it finally with an expression of distress he said it grieves me deeply madam but i am forced to admit that you have divined the truth the boy is indeed blind irremediably blind sadly but without agitation the mother listened to this announcement i knew it long ago she softly murmured part three the family into which this blind child was born was a small one its other two members were the father and uncle maxime so called not only by his own people but also by friends and acquaintances the father was a fair example of the landowners in the southwestern district he was good-natured even kindly probably an excellent overseer of the workmen fond of building and making alterations in his mills these occupations consumed all his time hence his voice was seldom heard in the house except at the regular hours for dinner lunch or other events of a similar character at such times he never failed to ask his customary question of his wife are you feeling well my dove after which he would seat himself at the table and make no further remarks save perhaps an occasional observation on the subject of cylinders or pinions it might be expected that his quiet and simple existence would find a pale reflection in the nature of his son uncle maxime was of quite a different temperament ten years previous to the events we are about to describe he had been famed for his quarrelsome temper not only in the vicinity of his own estate but even in kiev and at the contracts no one could understand the existence of such a brother in a family so respectable as that of pani popelska ne yatsenko amicable relations with such a man were out of the question for it was impossible to please him he insolently repelled the advances of the pans and overlooked an amount of wilfulness and impertinence on the part of the peasants which would have been punished with blows by even the mildest among the nobility finally to the great joy of all respectable persons uncle maxime for reasons best known to himself 
became very much displeased with the austrians and departed for italy there he joined garibaldi a heathen soldier who like himself delighted in fighting and who as it was rumoured among the pan landlords was in league with the devil and showed no reverence for the pope by such actions maxime of course imperilled forever his restless heretical soul but on the occasion of the contracts fewer scandals took place and many an excellent mother felt more at ease concerning the welfare of her sons the austrians on their part were doubtless angry with uncle maxime now and then his name appeared in the courier a favourite old paper of the pan landlords united with those of garibaldi's most daring comrades and one day the pans read in the same courier that uncle maxime had fallen with his horse on the battlefield the enraged austrians who had long been waiting for a chance to attack this desperate volinian who in the opinion of his countrymen was garibaldi's mainstay and support chopped him in pieces like cabbage maxime's was a sad end said the pans and ascribed it to the immediate interposition of st peter in behalf of his representative on earth maxime was reckoned among the dead subsequently however it became known that the austrian sabres had no power to expel maxime's obstinate spirit and that it still dwelt in his considerably damaged body the garibaldians rescuing their worthy comrade from the fray had carried him to some hospital and lo after a few years maxime unexpectedly appeared in his sister's house where he ever after remained but maxime could fight no more duels he had lost his right foot and was obliged to use a crutch while his left leg was so injured as to require him to use also a cane on the whole he had lost much of his former excitability and it was only occasionally that his sharp tongue did duty for his sword he ceased to visit the contracts seldom appeared in society and spent most of his time in the library reading but in regard to the contents of the books save for the a priori supposition that they must be atheistic no one had the faintest idea he also wrote from time to time but as his compositions never appeared in the courier they were supposed to be quite insignificant about the time when the little new being entered upon its career in the country house one might have noticed streaks of silver-grey in uncle maxime's closely cropped hair from the constant use of crutch and cane he had grown high-shouldered which gave to his figure a certain square effect his peculiar aspect his knitted brows the clatter of his crutch and cane and the clouds of tobacco-smoke in which he was constantly enveloped since he never took the pipe from his mouth all these things intimidated strangers and only those who lived with him knew that his crippled body held a warm and kind heart and that his large square head covered with thick bristling hair was the seat of constant mental activity but those who were nearer to him had but a vague notion of the problems that perplexed and absorbed uncle maxime's mind at this time they only knew that he would sit motionless for hours at a time enveloped in a cloud of blue smoke with knitted eyebrows and a far-away look in his eyes 
Meanwhile, this crippled warrior was pondering upon the battle of life and feeling that there was no room in it for invalids. He pictured himself as having left the ranks forever, and he felt like a man encumbering the hospital ambulance. He was like a knight, unseated and overthrown in the conflict of life. Did it not show a lack of courage to crawl in the dust like a crushed worm? Would it not be a coward's part to grasp the stirrup of the conqueror and beg for the sorry remnant of his own life? While Uncle Maxime was calmly considering this vital question, with all its pros and cons, a new being appeared before his eyes, whose fate it was to enter life in invalid from his very birth. At first Maxime paid but little heed to the blind child, but as time went on, the singular likeness between the boy's fate and his own interested him. Hmm, hmm, he thoughtfully muttered to himself as he looked at the child from the corner of his eyes. This chap is also an invalid. If we two could be put together, one useful man might be made of us. And after that, he gazed at the child more and more frequently. Part 4 The child was born blind. Who was to blame for this misfortune? No one. There was no slightest shade of the evil eye. The very cause of the misfortune itself was hidden somewhere in the depths of the mysterious and complex processes of life. Anguish pierced the mother's heart as she gazed on her blind boy. She suffered not alone as a mother, in her sympathy with her son's affliction, together with a sad prescience of the painful future awaiting her child. But added to these feelings there dwelt within the depths of the young mother's heart a consciousness that the cause of this misfortune may have been latent as a dreaded possibility in those who gave him life. This in itself sufficed to make the little creature, with his beautiful sightless eyes, the central figure of the family and its unconscious despot. Every member of the household strove to gratify his lightest fancy. What would in time have become of this boy, unconsciously predisposed as he was to resent his misfortune, and whose egotism was fostered by all those who surrounded him, had not a strange fatality combined with the Austrian sabres to compel Uncle Maxime to settle down in the country in his sister's family? No one can tell. By the presence of the blind boy in the house, the active mind of the crippled soldier was gradually and imperceptibly directed into a new channel. He would still smoke his pipe, hour after hour, but the old expression of pain and dejection had given place to one of interest. Yet the more Uncle Maxime pondered, the more he wrinkled his thick brows, and more and more heavy grew the volumes of smoke. Finally one day he made up his mind to interfere. "'That youngster,' he said, puffing out ring after ring of smoke, "'will be much more unhappy than I am. Far better had he never been born.' An expression of acute suffering saddened the mother's face as she gave her brother a reproachful glance. "'It is cruel to remind me of this, Max,' she said gently, "'and to do it wantonly.' "'I am simply telling you the truth,' replied Maxime. 
I have lost a hand and a foot, but I have eyes. This youngster has no eyes, and in time will have neither hands nor feet nor will. What do you mean? Pray understand me, Anna, said Maxime in a gentler tone. I would not reiterate these cruel truths had I no object. This boy's nervous organization is extremely sensitive. Hence it is possible so to develop his other faculties that their acuteness will compensate him, at least to a certain degree, for his blindness. But to attain this he must use his faculties, and the use of one's faculties must be compelled by necessity, an unwise solicitude that prevents him from making any effort— will ruin his chances for living a full life. The mother was sensible, and therefore knew how to control that instinctive impulse which urged her, at every pitiful cry of the child, to rush to him. A few months after this conversation, the boy could creep about the rooms with ease and rapidity. He listened intently to every sound, and by his sense of touch, eagerly examined every object that happened to come within his reach. He soon learned to know his mother by her footstep, by the rustling of her dress, and by certain other signs perceptible to him alone. It made no difference to him whether there were many persons in the room or not, or if they changed their positions. He never failed to turn with unerring accuracy toward the spot where she sat. When she lifted him in her arms, he knew at once that he was sitting in his mother's lap. When others took him up, he would pass his little hands rapidly over the face of the person, thus recognizing, almost at once, the nurse, Uncle Maxime, or his father. But if it happened to be a stranger, then the movements of the tiny hands were more deliberate. The boy passed them carefully and attentively over the unfamiliar face his features betraying his intense interest. He seemed to be looking at the strange face with his fingertips. By nature the blind boy was a very lively and active child, but as month succeeded month, blindness set its impress on the boy's temperament, which began to manifest its true character. He gradually lost his rapidity of motion. He would sit perfectly still for hours in some remote corner with unchanging expression, as if listening, when at times the various sounds that usually distracted his attention ceased, and the room became quiet, the child would sit absorbed in thought, and upon his beautiful face, serious beyond his years, an expression of bewilderment and surprise would appear. Uncle Maxime was right. The exquisite organization of the child manifested itself in an extraordinary susceptibility of the senses of hearing and touch, by means of which he verified to a certain extent the correctness of his impressions. All who saw him were amazed at the wonderful delicacy of his touch. Occasionally it even seemed as if he were able to distinguish colors, for when, as sometimes happened, bits of bright-colored cloth fell into his hands, his slender fingers would linger over them, while a look half of perplexity, half of interest, would flash across his face. As time went on, however, it grew more and more evident that his susceptibility was principally developed in the sense of hearing. 
he quickly learned to distinguish the different rooms in the house by sound. He recognized the steps of the members of the household, the creaking of his invalid uncle's chair, the dry and measured whiz of the thread in his mother's hands, or the regular ticking of the clock. Sometimes, as he felt his way along the side of the room, he would hear a slight rustle, inaudible to others, and put out his hand to catch a fly crawling on the wall. When the startled insect rose and flew away, an expression of painful surprise would come over the face of the blind boy. He could not account for the mysterious disappearance of the fly. But the next moment, in spite of his perplexity, his face assumed an expression of intelligent interest. He turned his head in the direction taken by the fly, his acute sense of hearing having caught in the air the scarcely perceptible sound of the insect's wings. Of all the glittering, murmuring, bustling world without, the blind child could form no conception save by its sounds. That peculiar expression characteristic of an intense concentration of the sense of hearing had become habitual to his face. The lower jaw was a little depressed, the brows contracted, and the head inclined slightly forward on its slender neck. But the beautiful eyes, with their unchanging gaze, imparted to the face of the blind child a stern and at the same time a touching aspect. Part Five, The second winter of the boy's life was drawing to a close. The snow outside had begun to thaw, and the streamlets to sing their spring songs. At the same time the boy's health changed for the better. He had been rather delicate during the winter, and had, in consequence, been kept in the house, and never permitted to breathe the outdoor air. The double windows were now removed, and spring— with all the vigor of new life, burst into the rooms. The cheerful sun shone in at the glittering windows. The leafless branches of the beech trees swayed to and fro. The distant fields were black, save for the white patches of melting snow still lying here and there, and the spots where the young grass had begun to look green. On every side, the stimulating influence of the spring imparted new vigor and life. One seemed to breathe more freely. To the blind boy within the room, spring manifested its presence only by the swiftness of its sounds. He could hear the rushing of the floods running a race, as it were, leaping over the stones and sinking deep into the moistened soil. The faint resonance of the whispering birch trees as their tossing branches beat against the windows, and the rapid dripping of the icicles that hung from the roof, which, since the sun had set them free from the chill embrace of the night frost, were hurrying away, their ringing footsteps followed by a thousand echoes. All these sounds made their way into the room, like a storm of pebble-stones beating a hurried tattoo upon the ground. Above all these harmonies of nature could be heard from time to time the calls of the storks, echoing softly from the distant heights, and dying gradually away, as if melting in air. This new birth of nature was reflected upon the boy's face in the form of distress and perplexity. He would knit his brows, listen for a while, then suddenly, as though alarmed by the mysterious hurrying of the sounds, 
he would stretch forth his arms, seeking his mother, and rushing to her would nestle in her bosom. "'What can be the matter with him?' the mother cried, questioning herself and others. Uncle Maxime, carefully scanning the boy's face, could in no way explain his strange alarm. "'I suppose he cannot understand,' suggested the mother, thus construing the expression of mute surprise and distressed inquiry upon her son's face. The child indeed was frightened and uneasy. At first he had seemed to catch eagerly at the unaccustomed sounds, but soon he showed his surprise that the noises already familiar to his ear were all at once hushed and gone. Part six. Soon the chaotic sounds of springtime died away. Encouraged by the burning rays of the sun, nature fell into her ancient grooves and gradually settled down to work. The newly springing life did its utmost. Its rate of speed increased like a swiftly rushing steam train. The tender grass was springing in the fields, and the odor of the birch buds filled the air. It was proposed to take the boy out into the meadows to the bank of the nearest river. The mother led him by the hand. Uncle Maxime, leaning on his crutch and cane, walked by her side, and thus the three started for the little hill near the river, where the sun and the wind had already dried the ground. It was thickly carpeted with green grass, and its summit commanded quite a broad view. The brilliant daylight dazzled the eyes of Maxime and the mother, and when the sunbeams burned their faces, the spring breeze came with its invisible wings, dispelling the warmth by a refreshing coolness. There was a sense of enchantment, of intoxication, in the air. The mother felt the child's tiny hand clinging fast to her own, but so transported was she by the exhilarating influence of the springtime that she was less keenly observant than usual of this sign of childish alarm. She breathed in long and full respirations, and walked along without once turning her head. Had she looked down at her boy, she would have discovered a strange expression on his face. He turned his wide-open eyes toward the sun with a sense of surprise. His lips were parted, inhaling the air, he gasped like a fish that has just been taken out of the water. An expression of mingled pain and delight was depicted on his bewildered face, which, passing over it, like a nerve wave, illumined the face for a moment, yielding directly, however, to the former expression of surprise, that might almost be called alarm. The eyes alone constantly preserved their steady, unchanging, and sightless gaze. Having reached the hill, all three seated themselves. As the mother was lifting the boy to place him in a more comfortable position, he caught nervously at her dress, like one who was on the point of falling, almost as if he no longer felt the ground beneath his feet. Again the mother took no heed of his alarm, because both her own eyes and attention were absorbed in the charming spring landscape. It was noonday. Slowly the sun sailed across the blue sky. From the elevation where they sat could be seen the wide-spreading river. Its ice had already floated down the current, save a few occasional fragments dotting the surface here and there, which were fast melting away. On the low meadows the water was still standing in broad lagoons, 
which reflected the blue dome of the heavens and the snowy clouds that slowly passed and vanished like the melting ice a gentle breeze rippled the glistening surface of the river looking across to the opposite shore one could see the dark grain fields whose steaming vapour rising wave after wave veiled the thatched huts far away in the distance and obscured the vague blue outline of the forest it was as if the earth sent up its clouds of incense to the sky all this however was visible only to those who had eyes the boy saw nothing of this picture he could not look upon that festival of nature nor on her marvellous temple his sensations were vague and broken his childish heart was troubled when he had first started with the sun's rays falling full upon his face warming his delicate skin he instinctively turned his sightless eyes in its direction as if he realized the central force in the invisible picture before him the transparent distance the blue dome overhead the wide horizon had no existence so far as he was concerned the sole effect produced on him was a sense of some material substance warming his face with its soft caress then something both cool and light although less tangible than the warmth of the sun lifted from his face the sensation of tender caressing languor and left behind a delicious coolness within the house the boy had become accustomed to move freely conscious of the space surrounding him here he was encompassed by pursuing waves which now caressed and now excited and intoxicated him the sun's warm touch was suddenly brushed away a gust of wind began to ring in his ears and to blow about his face and temples indeed all over his head down to the very nape of his neck whirling around him as though it were trying to bear him away or to entice him somewhere into the invisible space benumbing his consciousness and lulling him into a languor of forgetfulness then the boy's hand would cling more closely to his mother's and it seemed to him as though his heart must cease to beat however after he was seated he appeared to grow calmer already notwithstanding the strange sensation that pervaded his whole being he had begun to distinguish the separate sounds the atmospheric waves were still dashing tumultuously about him and as the throbbings of his quickened pulse beat time to the music of these waves it seemed to him that they were entering his very body from time to time they brought to him the lark's sharp trill the soft whisper of the budding birch or the gentle splash of the flowing river the lark whizzing by on its light wings paused just overhead to describe its capricious circles the gnats buzzed and over all sad and prolonged rose the occasional cry of the ploughman urging his horses over a half-ploughed strip of land the boy failed to grasp these sounds in their entirety he could neither unite them nor group them in any satisfactory sequence one by one they seemed to project themselves into his dark little head now soft and vague now loud and sharp and deafening at times they came crowding confusedly on each other jumbled in meaningless discord faster and faster ran the waves now it seemed to the boy as if above all this tumult of sounds 
he could hear muffled echoes like memories of the past coming to him from another world when the sounds grew fainter a sense of dreamy languor came over him a convulsive twitching betrayed the successive waves of feeling that swept across his face he closed his eyes then opened them and every feature seemed to ask a question striving to grasp the situation his childish sense of appreciation as yet but feeble overwhelmed as it was with new impressions although it still struggled against the tide making an effort to hold its own to combine them into something like unity and thus to gain the victory over them showed signs of giving away the task was too great for the brain of a blind child destitute of the necessary images by means of which he might have achieved it all these sounds rose into the air flying to and fro and falling one by one all too varied too resonant the waves that had taken possession of the boy rose with greater force from the darkness that encompassed him with its reverberating echoes and were again resolved into the same darkness only to be replaced by other waves and other sounds more and more hurried soaring above him filling his soul with anguish again they seemed to lift him up as if lulling him to repose with gentle rocking motion suddenly above this vague confusion arose the long-drawn note of a human call then all at once everything became still with a faint moan the boy rolled over backward on the grass the mother turned instantly and she in her turn uttered a cry he was lying on the grass in a deep swoon part seven uncle maxime was very much disturbed by this occurrence he had of late ordered a number of physiological psychological and educational works and with his habitual energy had devoted himself to the study of all that science has revealed concerning the mysterious growth and development of a child's soul the delight of these studies had so charmed him that all brooding fancies concerning his own uselessness in the battle of life the worm grovelling in the dust and the hospital ambulance had long since vanished from the invalid's square head and in their stead appeared a deep and thoughtful absorption rose-coloured hopes even came from time to time to warm the veteran's heart uncle maxime grew more and more convinced that nature although she had deprived the boy of his sight had not in other respects dealt unjustly with him he was a creature who responded with remarkable activity and completeness to the exterior impressions accessible to him uncle maxime conceived it to be his duty to develop the latent capabilities of the boy so that the injustice of his doom might be counterbalanced by the efforts of his own mind and influence and that he might be enabled to send as a substitute into the battle of life another and a younger combatant who without his influence would be lost to the service who knows thought the old garibaldian but there may be a fight in which neither lance nor sword are needed perchance he with whom fate has dealt so hardly may some time employ the weapons that he is capable of wielding in the defence of others victims of fate like himself 
and then my life will not have been spent in vain, old crippled soldier that I am. Even the free thinkers during the forties and fifties of the present century were not free from superstitious ideas regarding the mysterious designs of nature. Therefore, it was not surprising that with the gradual development of the child, who showed unusual gifts, Uncle Maxime should have arrived at the firm conviction that his very blindness was only one of the manifestations of those mysterious designs. One unfortunate for another. This was the motto which Uncle Maxime had already inscribed on his pupil's standard. Part 8 After that first excursion in the spring, the boy was delirious for several days. He either lay quiet and motionless upon his bed, or kept up a constant muttering, as if he were listening to something. Meanwhile, the peculiar expression of wonder never left his face. He really looks as if he were trying in vain to understand something, said the young mother. Maxime had grown thoughtful. He merely nodded. He had suspected that the boy's strange alarm, as well as his swoon, might be attributed to the numerous impressions which the boy's perceptive faculties had been unable to grasp and he decided to allow these impressions to find their way into the mind of the convalescent child by degrees, disintegrated, so to speak, into their component parts. The windows of the invalid's room had been closed, but when he began to recover, they were occasionally opened. Some member of the family used to lead him about the rooms, and into the vestibule, the yard, and the garden. Every time his mother observed a look of alarm upon his face, she would explain to him the nature of the sounds that perplexed him. "'That is the shepherd's horn you hear beyond the wood,' she explained. "'And that sound which you hear above the twittering of the sparrows is the note of the red wing. Listen to the stork gurgling on his wheel. He has just arrived from distant lands and is now building his nest on the old spot.' As the mother spoke thus, the boy turned toward her, his face beaming with gratitude, and seized her hand and nodded, as, with a thoughtful and intelligent expression, he continued to listen. Part 9 Now, when anything attracted his attention, he always asked what it meant, and his mother, or more frequently Uncle Maxime, would explain to him the nature of the objects or of the creatures that caused these various sounds. His mother's explanations, more lively and graphic, impressed the boy with greater force, but sometimes this impression would be too painful. Upon the features of the young woman, herself suffering, could be read the expression of her inmost feelings, and in her eyes a silent protest or look of pain as she strove to convey to the child an idea of form and color. With contracted brow and wrinkled forehead, the boy concentrated his whole attention. Evidently his brain was at work, struggling with difficult problems. His unpractised imagination strove to shape from the descriptions given him a new image, a feat which it was unable to perform. At such times Uncle Maxime always frowned with displeasure and when the tears appeared in the mother's eyes, and the child's face grew pale from the effect of his intense effort, Maxime would interfere, and, taking his sister's place, 
would tell his nephew's stories, in the invention of which he would try to use only such ideas as related to sound and space. Then the face of the blind boy would grow calmer. And is he big? the child asked about the stork, who seemed to be beating in his nest a slow tattoo. Saying this, he began to spread out his arms, for this was his custom whenever he asked such questions, and Uncle Maxime would always tell him when he had extended them far enough. But this time he had stretched out his little arms to their utmost limit, and Uncle Maxime said, No, he is still larger. If he were brought into this room and put upon the floor, his head would reach above the back of the chair. He is large, said the boy thoughtfully, and the red wing is like this, slightly parting his folded palms. Yes, the red wing is like this, but the large birds never sing so well as little ones. The red wing tries to make everybody pleased to hear him. But the stork is a serious bird. He stands on one leg in his nest and looks about like an angry master watching his workmen and mutters aloud, heeding not that his voice is hoarse and that he can be overheard by outsiders. The boy laughed merrily while he listened to these descriptions and for a time forgot his painful efforts to understand his mother's words. Yet her stories possessed a greater charm for him, and he preferred to question her rather than Uncle Maxime. End of chapter 1 Recording by Skya Simaru Mililani, Hawaii October 2020